the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, thanks for giving it the old college try. 2023 wasn't a good year for institutions of higher learning, uh, and not just because of the usual bias against all things conservative. Uh, And it has spilled over into 2024. In case you hadn't heard, a little while ago, Claudine Gray resigned. She was president of Harvard and embarrassed herself and her university at a a congressional hearing on anti-Semitism a couple of weeks ago. In her resignation letter, she said, Ask not what Harvard can do for you. Ask what you can do for Harvard. Actually, she didn't write that, but nobody would have been surprised if she had because, you know, she's been exposed as a major plagiarist since her appearance at the hearing, and it became too much of an embarrassment for Harvard to keep her around. And she's still going to get to teach, by the way. And it was a good way to finish a year when lots of people have been rethinking college and how the whole idea needs to be fixed. And speaking of institutions of higher learning, add to that the stupidity displayed over the weekend on national television. Uh, Colleges succeeded in ruining one of America's favorite pastimes and one of our great traditions. That would be holiday bowl games because of a stupid playoff system. Uh, It's one that allows a committee to determine who gets to compete for a national championship. And an undefeated team, Florida State, that didn't make the championship Final Four, showed up at the Orange Bowl, missing 25 players who saw no reason to risk their pro prospects or their chance to transfer to the school that offers them the most money by playing in the game. So Georgia won 63-6 to in the Orange Bowl. And now college football at the highest levels is pro football, and it has little or nothing to do with college, and it's not going to be fixed anytime soon either. The next step, and it's coming, is to just forget about the college part and have the schools just pay players who aren't students or even pretending to be, just have them play football. And again, we're talking about institutions of higher learning. When we come back, we have Jeffrey McCall. He's a professor of communications at DePaul University, He has a column today up at the Hill about how the journalism profession has lost its way. And we'll talk about 2023 and 2024 in the media. And in our second half hour, Congressman Guy Reschenthaler to talk about what happened with the Republicans in 2023, what might happen in 2024. Stick around. Well, another year has ended, a new one starting up right now, and the media, believe it or not, are still biased. And I saw a study from Syracuse University the other day that says only 3.4% of American journalists are Republicans. Jeffrey McCall is a professor of communications at DePaul University. He's also a journalist. He critiques media at the Hill, and uh, he's our first guest of 2024. He also uh, has a column up today, and that's what we're going to talk to Jeff about. Thanks for coming on. You're welcome. Happy New Year. Hey, same to you. So before we get to the media uh, itself in 2023, um, this is, well, the media is journalism, but the headline of your your piece at the Hill says, Journalism Professors 
that the journalism profession has lost its way, and it's not just about the New York Times. You want to give us the Cliff Notes version of your column? Yeah, sure. Thanks a lot. Uh, uh, in uh, December, a uh, former opinion editor for the New York Times, James Bennett, uh, wrote a column for The Economist, and it's a rather long essay, and your listeners, I think, would find it interesting. But James Bennett is a former opinion editor for The New York Times, and he wrote a long essay in The Economist in which he details the fact that he thinks The New York Times has lost its way, uh, that he thinks The New York Times is not doing effective journalism anymore and that it's become more interested in ideological drift than it is with actual news. Uh, and this is interesting because Bennett, of course, was in the belly of the beast for a long time, working as the opinion editor for the New York Times. And you might remember a couple of years ago, he was elbowed out of the New York Times uh, from his lofty position as opinion editor because he was the one who gave the green light to a column written by Senator Tom Cotton that approved that that appeared in the New York Times during the summer of 2020. And that column by Tom Cotton had suggested that, you know, authorities around the country should consider using the military to stop the riots and to stop people from burning down federal buildings and whatnot. And at first uh, glance, that, you know, was not that big of a concern. But uh, Bennett later was elbowed out for having cleared that column to go on the air or into, into print and on their website because supposedly it made people who worked at the New York Times feel unsafe. And so uh, Bennett moved on, uh, but it's interesting to think that a couple of years later he wrote this column where he's criticizing the New York Times and how well it's doing or not doing its job professional journalism. Uh, and my point was that his essay in The Economist is actually an indictment of the entire news industry because Bennett himself is specifically talking about the New York Times but I think his criticisms can be applied more broadly to the news industry, generally speaking. And one of the things I point out in my column that's in the Hill was that all major news organizations that uh, your listeners would recognize as kind of the establishment media are listed as leaning left on the all-size media bias chart. Now, all-size media is an independent organization that tracks media content and labels it in terms of its ideological drift. And the New York Times, of course, is a left-leaning news organization, as identified by all sides media, but so is the Washington Post and USA Today and the Associated Press and NBC and ABC and CNN and MSNBC. So basically, all of the traditional media outlets are listed as leaning left. And that's what made me think in terms of preparing my own column that when Bennett criticizes the New York Times, we could basically criticize the entire media industry because they all lean left. And as you suggested, uh, the latest study that came out of Syracuse University indicates that uh, only a little over 3% of all journalists even claim that they would be Republicans in any nature. Uh, and there aren't that many who list themselves as independents either. And so when you look at the way people identify their political ideologies in terms of working in journalism, it's not surprising that your news agenda ends up overwhelmingly left-leaning uh, and and not that fair. And, I mean, that's one thing. You know, honestly, I must say I don't mind whether a reporter is a Democrat or a Republican or independent or anything else. 
as long as they can report the news fairly. And I think that's possible to do regardless of what your political leanings are, because my sense, as we've talked before, is that fairness in journalism is a skill and it should be able to be applied regardless of how you're going to vote in an election. And I think that's, you know, what we expect out of uh, officials in sporting events as well. You know, when a guy goes out to umpire a baseball game or referee a football game, we expect them to referee that game fairly, regardless of what they might think about the personalities on the sidelines or players yelling at them or anything else. They got to put all that aside. And I think we should expect the same out of our news journalists as well. And um, so, Jeff, why has the New York Times been able to continue to be or how? I guess same same question. Why or how? Uh, has the New York Times been able to continue to be the standard bearer? As you point out in your column, they still uh, wield a lot of influence over there. Well, the New York Times, I think, still is the number one agenda setter in the nation because there's there's no question that all other news organizations make a point to read the New York Times every day to kind of see, well, what are they covering? So, I mean, they are the industry standard, quote-unquote, uh, because, you know, that they're – they're the biggest news organization in the nation's biggest city. And I think that gives them a certain amount of clout just, you know, out the starting gate. Uh, and the other new major news organizations, as I mentioned, uh, all have major bureaus in New York City, so they all pay attention to what the Times thinks. Now, I think there was a time when the New York Times could carry that mantle of being the, the leading news agenda setter halfway fairly, and it made sense. But I think they've drifted and become more ideologically driven over the years. And so I, w- I think that the news industry should have abandoned them as the leading agenda setter long ago. Uh, so it, it, it's one of those things where it's kind of like too bad, but they're still the biggest uh, news organization in terms of clout in the country. And I'm not saying that people should ignore them, but I am saying that people need to consider the source these days and to consider that the New York Times has kind of abandoned its mission, you know, to be the bastion of independent, fair journalism. Uh, And and interestingly, in terms of independent journalism, uh, it was worth noting that the publisher uh, of the New York Times, and his name is Salzberger, uh, responded to James Bennett's piece in The Economist with, with a rather pointed statement where he's defending the importance of independent journalism. And I'm thinking, well, sure, independent journalism is great, the problem is that the New York Times is not doing independent journalism anymore. They're cowing, you know, to the people on their ideological side of things. And I think that's kind of where they've lost their way, so to speak. And that's where I agree with James Bennett that the New York Times has lost its way. Professional journalism, more broadly defined, has lost its way. And when they get back to doing independent journalism, uh, we'll be headed back in the right direction to the professional standards that carried the news industry for the better part of the last half century. Yeah, you say in your column, and I, I was going to ask you until I saw your column, uh, if you think that there's any reason to believe that, uh, first of all, that the media were any less biased in 2023, and whether they would, uh, whether there's any reason to believe that they'll be any better in 2024. But in your column, you finish by saying that the, uh, the, the journalism industry has to reinvent itself. How is that possible at this point? Well, I'm not sure it is possible in the near future. And part of the problem is that the the journalism industry 
is made up of people who hire each other. And when you think of a guy like James Bennett, uh, he is the opinion editor of the New York Times, and he gets elbowed out for trying to be independently minded. That means that the people who are left are not that independent. And so I don't think there's a prospect in the near future for a reinvention of the journalism industry. And I think everybody who consumes mainstream media needs to take it with a huge grain of salt. Uh, and they need to do what I call lateral reading. They need to get their sources, they get their, get their news from a number of different sources and not rely on any one place. And I just wonder at what point the news industry will take a, take an introspective look and say, you know what we're doing isn't serving our own purposes very well, but it's certainly not serving the purposes of the nation very well and begin the reinvention. And, and I, I mentioned in the column, uh, in that, that's in the Hill, is that the news industry is suffering. Uh, there have been massive, massive layoffs across the news industry in the last year, and more are expected. Uh, the bottom line for a lot of news organizations is suffering. And I just wonder at a, at a certain, you know, I mean, they're laying off people at the Washington Post and places like that. And there's a point where it's kind of like, you know, the, the way we're doing news is not working out financially. We're going to have to do it a different way. But honestly, I think some of these news organizations are willing to suffer financially rather than to change their ideological drift. I agree with you. Um, and uh, we're talking to Jeff McCall. He's a professor of communications at DePaul University. Uh, it's, it's a subject for another day because you mentioned that the, uh, the, the journalism industry has to examine itself and reinvent itself. I get the feeling, and you are a college professor, just a, a quick thought here, uh, that, that uh, maybe colleges uh, are already starting to do that a little bit. Uh, with this resignation of the uh, president at, at Harvard, that maybe colleges are going to start to look at themselves a little bit more critically? I think they need to. And I think if you look at colleges uh, and their left-leaning drift over the last uh, 25, 30 years, it kind of parallels what we've seen uh, in the professional journalism industry as well. Mm-hmm. And I think it is worth noting that colleges and universities are maybe starting to show some signs that they're recognizing the problems by having become so ideologically driven. You know, I've always thought all along that colleges and universities should have no domestic policy and they should have no international policy. Uh, But they've all adopted various policies where they are pushing indoctrination. And those chickens are now starting to come home to roost. And I'm thinking, you know, when... A minority woman president at Harvard uh, is finally elbowed out. Uh, it is a signal that even at Harvard, they've, they finally figured out that if you're just doing ideological drift, that that's not sufficient to maintain the prestige and mission of a major university. Uh, and we also know that a number of universities around the country have gotten rid of their bias response teams, mm-hmm. and they're starting to de-emphasize DEI in hiring. Good. And so it might be that I'm not I'm not sure I'm ready to go there yet, but I think there might be signs that in higher education they figured out that they can't try to put their thumb on the scale politically on all kinds of issues. That you know the 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 mission of higher education is to educate the next generation broadly and let them become independent thinkers. And indoctrination doesn't work ultimately. And I think that newspapers should learn from what might be happening at colleges and universities and say, 
you know, trying to indoctrinate people through newspapers isn't necessarily going to work either. So uh, <clears throat> we have a few minutes left here with Jeff McCall of DePaul University and The Hill. You can find his column at thehill.com. Um, so if I were asked to uh, cast a vote for the media story of the year, I would vote Tucker Carlson being fired at Fox. Would you agree with me on that? Yeah, that that was certainly a big one. Um, and, and, and Fox, I don't know, has necessarily recovered from that loss. Uh, I don't know that uh, their viewers uh, have gone anywhere else in particular, but I think a lot of them maybe just, just left altogether. Mm-hmm. Fox News' ratings have declined since the Tucker Carlson incident. Uh, I think part of that is just the nature that in an off year uh, without elections going on that people are less interested in the news. I think part of it is a lot of Fox viewers just lost confidence that Fox was trying to do real journalism. And whatever people think of Tucker Carlson, and certainly he is an opinion-driven guy, he was trying to do honest-to-goodness journalism. He was trying to speak independently. He was taking on subjects that a lot of other people were unwilling to take on. And so he was enterprising uh, to a sense that I think is probably healthy in the journalism world but made Fox executives very skittish, and uh, they eventually parted ways. Uh, I think Tucker is still trying to find his way to try to figure out how can he continue to wield influence, because uh, I don't think even with his you know, online broadcasts and commentaries that he has the influence that he had when he was in the uh, anchor desk, so to speak, at Fox News every primetime evening. But I don't think he's going to be ignored either, and I still expect him to be a player and a voice uh, on the national landscape on a lot of issues going forward. I have about a minute and a half left here, Jeff. Um, I think everybody agrees that this is going to be a really ugly election year. Will this ugliness just lead to more bias on both sides, not less? You know, sadly, it probably will. I don't think that there are news organizations willing to step up and say, we're going to try to be fair to all parties. I think they're going to have to be like OAN or Newsmax and, you know, carry the water for the Republican side of things. Or they're going to be like the establishment media we've already talked about, carrying the water for the Democratic side of things. Uh, And I think that's too bad because I don't know where people are going to get their information because people don't want news from polarized sources. Uh, and I, you know, they don't mind getting opinion from polarized sources, and that's fine. But I don't think they're going to be able to get news from the polarized sources. And I also don't think they should be getting it from social media for all the reasons we've talked about before. Social media is not a good place to get news. I have less than a minute. Um, how bad will the evidence of Joe Biden's corruption have to be in order to get the legacy outlets to show more interest in that story? Uh, you know, I've been really sad that the, the legacy outlets have not shown any more curiosity about the Biden situation. And in a sense, you know, they never showed any curiosity about most of Clinton's corruption when he was in office either. Uh, and although it is kind of funny to note that, you know, Epstein's list of uh, visitors and friends is going to be apparently revealed through court documents this week. And apparently the news media is going to have to report that Bill Clinton's name is prominent on there. Mm-hmm. But I think the news organizations going through the election uh, are going to be very polarized. They're going to go nuts, of course, if Trump wins the Republican nomination. But even if he doesn't, they'll pick on whoever the Republican nominee, and they will be equally the boogeyman going forward, whether it's DeSantis or Nikki Haley or whoever it is. 
Well, you can find his column at thehill.com. You can find him here a lot. Good to have you as our first guest of the year here, uh, Jeff. Thank you very much. Thank you, John, and have a great year. You too. That's Jeff McCall of DePaul University. I'll be right back. The Republicans in the House are uh, just finishing up uh, their first year with uh, control, with the majority, and it's a smaller majority with one more year to go and an election 10 months away and a lot at stake. Guy Reschenthaler represents the 14th District in the House of Representatives, and he joins us now. Guy, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. John, Happy New Year. Thanks for having okay, me on. Same to you. So um, would, you gra- would you grade Republicans in the House? Uh, how, how would you grade them uh, in the House halfway into this term with the majority? Well, look, I think that what we've done has been – we've had a lot of accomplishments, we'll put it this way. And remember, just by, the, just by us being in the majority, we're stopping all the reckless spending. We're stopping all the bad ideas from the Democrat Party. So, so just in and of itself, playing defense, I would grade it with an A. Now, if you look at what we've done it, last year, we've passed a lot. We passed a lot of bills. We had HR one, which is our marquee piece of legislation to unleash American energy. Incredibly important for Western Pennsylvania. We got that done. We passed HR two, which is a border security bill. That's the first time the House has passed a border security bill since the mid '90s. We passed the Parental Bill of Rights. We passed the uh, an NDAA, National Defense Authorization Act, that was 100% Republican votes. First time we passed that ever in the in the history of our country. The first time we had a Republican pass NDAA. Uh, we we passed the debt ceiling with Republican votes, and we limited government spending with that. Uh, actually, reduced government spending first time in several years. So the list goes on and on. We've had a lot of accomplishments. I'm, I'm proud of what we've done. Uh, the term there, there was no uh, red wave last year, which some people were expecting. And so, as I said, the, and you, everybody knows the edge is razor thin right now. How much can you expect to accomplish between now and next January? How much more, with uh, especially in an election year? No, so we, so the majority is razor thin. That's for sure. Especially with uh, Kevin McCarthy is is now uh, last his, his last day was uh, in December, and we're going to lose Bill Johnson my neighbor to, to the West, he's going to become the president of Youngstown State University. He'll leave at some point, I'd, I'd assume January, February or so. So the, the, the margin is going to be super thin, but we still got a lot coming at us. We have, we have government funding, half of it runs out uh, mid-January. We have the, net, the other half running out in February. If you look at March, we have the FAA reauthorization. And then in April, you have the FISA reauthorization. So just in those first four months, you have some huge legislative obstacles. Also, you have the supplemental packages to supplement Ukraine, Taiwan, Israel, border security. That's still out there. And let's let not let we can't forget about impeachment. We voted to have an impeachment inquiry of President Biden. Um, I voted numerous times to impeach my orcas. So you still have impeachments that are floating in the background as well. So this is going to be an action packed legislative year for us. Plus, you have the election. Now, I'm excited about the election. I think we're going to take back the Senate. I think we're going to grow our majority in the House. And a lot of that is because we have President Trump at the top of the ticket. If you talk to people inside the Beltway, they'll say that's going to hurt us. That's nonsense. Trump drives out our base. So our numbers, the number of people coming to the polls for us are going to be greater than it was in the off-year election. So that's actually going to help us win the Senate, expand the majority of the House, and, of course, put Trump back in the White House. 
Now, you mentioned Mayorkas. I was going to get to that in a minute, but and I wanted to ask you what do you think is the number one issue, but I'm going to throw out there what I'm, I guess, you, I think you can say, I think you'd agree that the economy is almost always the number one issue, especially when it's not good. Uh, and that's what people are, are focusing on. But I'm getting the feeling, I want to see if, you, if you're getting the same feeling, that immigration is starting to even sneak up on the economy to become uh, closer to being the number one issue. Just based on the pictures I've seen, the, uh, the horrifying pictures, actually, of what's happening down at the border, um, do you get the feeling that that is going to become much, much bigger in the next few months? I do. I, I do. Our top three issues are, are likely going to be jobs in the economy, and I can talk about that. Then it's going to be immigration, and then also don't forget about crime, uh, especially in places like Western Pennsylvania, where the crime, the homicide rate in Pittsburgh is higher than Chicago per capita. So just keep your head around that. I mean, crime is a huge issue. But getting back to the economy, uh, it, it's hysterical because Joe Biden and the Democrats wanted Bidenomics as if it was something to be celebrated. And now it's become a pejorative term. I mean, you've got food prices. Food prices are up about 20% since Joe Biden was in office. Rent rent is up over 18%. And then you have uh, just electricity in and of itself, not even talking about gasoline, but electricity is up about 25%. So what this means is it means your paycheck is, is, not, is not being stretched as far as it should be stretched. If you look at this Christmas, John, you had one in three American households not doing president exchanges because because of the, the cost of gifts this year, one in three American households, that's a staggering number. You've got you, you we now have one trillion dollars in credit card debt. That's an all time high. And you've got six. It's like something like 60 percent of American households are saying they're living paycheck to paycheck. So people's people are really hurting economically. And of course, that's because of Joe Biden the extreme Democrats and their agenda that's driving up uh, the inflation rates and, and energy costs in particular. But then you also have the whole immigration issue where people understand, they look at the southern border and they see absolute chaos. Um, they feel very bad for these people that are being trafficked, that are being victimized the entire trek up to the southern border, and they're continuing to be victimized as basically modern-day indentured servants once they get into the interior of the United States. They're, they're victims. Something has to be done to stop that. You also have tactical control of the border being surrendered and given to the Mexican drug cartels. And then there's a the whole issue of fentanyl where you have roughly 300 people a day in the United States dying of fentanyl overdoses, that would be like an airliner, a commercial airliner, one going down every single day for the last several years and no one even saying anything about it. I mean, these are staggering numbers. Um, and then, of course, you're going to have crime as an issue heading into the election as well. Now, the immigration thing, um, what, can, what can the Republicans do, a razor-thin majority or not, to um, change anything, or can, is, are you guys helpless until you, unless and until you take over the Senate and/or the, the White House? To actually, I mean, do something that people are going to notice. Yeah. So, so yes, yes, and no on that. So, remember, we passed HR two last year, so that's still out there. So, what we need to do in HR two is our border security bill. Um, pretty, pretty, pretty robust border security brings back a lot of the Trump administration, codifies a lot of what the Trump administration 
did, such as uh, remain in Mexico and catch and release, requires certain parts of the border wall be, be completed. Okay, there's other things in that bill too, but it's a, it's a very powerful bill. We can insist that HR2 or at least elements of HR2 get passed by the Senate if they want, let's say, extra funding for Ukraine. We can tie those two together. Or we can we can pick something else that the Senate Democrats really care about and say, we'll give you that if you give us H.R. 2 or, again, elements of H.R. 2. So. So, yes, we we are helpless in the sense that we need the Senate to act, but we're not helpless in the sense that we already have passed H.R. 2. And now we have it as a negotiation uh, chip uh, moving forward. What gets me, and we're talking to Guy Reschenthaler, he's congressman from District 14 uh, in Western PA, um, what gets me about this uh, is that it's th- there are some issues where you can see there can be a debate. You may disagree with the other side, um, and you may even be able to listen to what they're saying and, and, and agree with them to some extent. How can anybody come up with anything good about what's happening on the border? And it's, it's indefensible, but yet there are people out there. I mean, how, what, do you, what more has to happen? For the Democrats to get serious about it, or, or is this, or, or should I just assume that they don't want to get serious about it and they like it? They, oh, they, don't do not say that they're just doing this by accident. I mean, the Democrats are, are championing this chaos at the southern border. It's it's really disgusting. They and there's a lot of different reasons for it. For first and foremost, they view these immigrants as as possible voters. Um, that's that's shocking because right now the Republicans are getting 55% of the Hispanic vote. So if that's their motivation, that's going to backfire on them. But that's, that's what they're looking at. Then you have our corporate overlords that, that basically they're running the democratic party right now. Uh, All those corporate boards have gone, gone woke. And they like the idea of having cheap labor, which is absolutely disgusting because you're taking advantage of these illegal immigrants. You're also suppressing the wages of blue collar working Americans. So you're, you're actually hurting two different segments of, of society. So, so you have that going on as well. And then there's also this idea that we owe it to, to our neighbors to the South to allow them to migrate in. And it's this blame America first crowd where they, they always just assume we've done something wrong. So they, they, it's almost a perfect storm in that southern border, but it's all created and enabled by the extreme Democrats. So how much, you mentioned uh, impeaching Mayorkas, Alejandro Mayorkas, the Secretary of uh, the, uh, Homeland Security. Um, I just, if, if I called him up right now and asked him to be on the show, and I asked him about the border, would, uh, what's happening at the border, would he tell me the border is secure, and this was, would he pass a lie detector test if I hooked him up? Well, he, well, we know the answer to that question because he was under oath before a congressional hearing, and he said that we, meaning the United States, had tactical control of the southern border. We know that's false, that drug cartels have tactical control of the southern border. They're deciding who and what goes across the border, not the U.S. government, not members of Congress, and certainly not Mayorkas. That is, that is a problem. So either Mayorkas knows that the border is insecure or he thinks it is because he's an F. Either way, Mayorkas should be impeached. Frankly, John, on day number one when we took, when we took Congress, we should have impeached Mayorkas. We should have impeached Ray. We should have, um, we should have impeached Biden. We should have just gone and started impeaching um, all these administration officials for, for what they've done, for both for neglecting their duty and with Biden 
uh, clear quid pro quos and pay for play schemes that he had with Hunter Biden. Does has it gotten to the point where so many people need to be impeached that it makes it harder to impeach anybody? Where do you start? I, would you start with Mayorkas or Biden? Well, remember, well, so we we have the impeachment inquiry on uh, right, Biden already, right, right. so that that's that's underway right now. And then we voted to refer the investigation for Mayorkas to Homeland Security. Once Chairman Green and Homeland is done with that, then that will be referred to judiciary for impeachment. And of course, we'll have to vote on that again. But um, where, where you start, look, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Uh, it's very important. And look, at the end of the day, we don't even need to actually have the impeachment. We just need to show the American people leading up to the election all the nefarious actions that Joe and Hunter Biden did, how inept. Uh, Mayorkas, Mayorkas is with the southern border, how um, Christopher Wray um, and, and Merrick Garland weaponized the G- DOJ and the FBI, for example. So we can share all that dirty laundry, which will help the American people make the right decision this fall. Donald Trump is promising a mass deportation. Uh, can he or any Republican president pull that off? Yeah, it's easy. It's called E-Verify. So what you do is you require um, big business, which has been complicit in a lot, of, uh, a lot of the neglect of the southern border, again, making the bet they're going to get <clears throat> cheap, cheap labor. You force these big businesses to actually verify the immigration status of, of the workers, and then you enforce that. And if there are non-compliances, you have very heavy fines. Perhaps we even look at having um, uh, confinement, jail time for people that violate that. But then what that would do is it would create a self-deportation system where workers workers that are here illegally would not be able to get gainful employment and they would leave and go back home. But again, we need to pass. I'm a big champion of E-Verify. Um, so we need to get that. And that actually was in HR2. Um, I fought to keep that in there. But so if we have if we have e-verify as part of a negotiation with the Senate that that passes, then we can get self-deportation from those that are here illegally. Well, if they are being uh, given health care in places like California and uh, illegal immigrants are, and and, uh, being given places to live, and I don't know, I guess, I don't know if they're getting uh, checks from the state of California, but do they even need jobs? Well, so California, what California did was incredibly reckless. I can see paying for the health care for the children that are here that are not here of their own free, free will, that their parents brought them across. But it's another thing to pay for the health care of individuals that are here illegally. And California did this. Remember, California has a deficit, a budget deficit of roughly $68 billion a year. This is going to add to that deficit um, by, by a heavy margin, this is, this state is on the ropes. It has lost representation in Congress for the first time ever since it was brought in as a state. So I don't think the rest of the United States should, state should take a look at what California is doing and say, we need to emulate that. Let California make their own mistakes. But yeah, that is not the, that is not moving in the right direction if we want to get immigration. Uh, I should specifically say illegal immigration under control. We're talking to uh, Guy Reschenthaler. He's uh, representing the 14th District in the House of Representatives. i got a little bit over a minute left, uh, Guy. Um, I, I have to ask you, I think it was today, that uh, Allegheny County installed a new county executive, it's local politics for a minute, who happens to be a socialist. And there's already a socialist representing Allegheny County in the House, Summer Lee. Where is that going and how does that get stopped? 
Yeah, well, how it goes is this, it, it, that the businesses and people that want to have um, a strong economy and they want to have low crime rates, they leave the places like my district. They, they, move from, they move from downtown Pittsburgh and other areas in Allegheny County. They move their businesses to places like South Point in Washington County. Sure. And they go out to Greensburg, the Latrobe, or Ligonier. So in, so, in a, so in a way, the downfall of Pittsburgh actually helps surrounding areas and brings them back a certain bit. It's an absolute shame because Pittsburgh was on a great track. We had an incredibly bright future. But you can't have the kind of liberal socialist policies in place that these new elected officials are bringing and expect that you're going to have results like we did in the last 10 years. And remember, a lot of our gains that we made economically were because of oil and gas, the Marcellus boom. These socialist Democrats and, and, and frankly, the Democrat Party in, in its whole has, has waged a war on the natural gas producers, which has really hurt the economy both in Pittsburgh and in, all, and in the surrounding southwestern Pennsylvania area. Well, I uh, made the move to Washington County uh, about 30 years ago, one of my smarter moves. I'm glad I made it, and I invite everybody else to give it a try. Uh, I thank you for coming on, Guy. We'll talk soon. Hey, thanks, John. Happy New Year. Hey, same to you. That's Guy Reschenthaler of the 14th District. We'll be right back. Well, it is Tuesday, but it's also, as we used to do when I did these uh, features uh, for KDK TV for a long time, when the Steelers played on Monday night, we ran the feature called Steeler Monday on Tuesday. We didn't call it Steeler Tuesday. It was still Steeler Monday. You know, it was a dramatic license, I guess. But uh, we should mention a couple of things here. And it's not just the Steelers. Uh, 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 I mentioned a little bit in the open of the show about what happened with um, the bull situation in college football. I'll get to that in a minute. But something real quick about Kenny Pickett. Uh, there was a report that he had refused to be the backup uh, Saturday uh, in the game in Seattle. And uh, he came out today and said that wasn't true. I don't know whether it's true or not, but the situation with Kenny Pickett is this. I, uh, I've i said at the time, that, that before the draft, before the Steelers picked him as the, in the first round, I said that uh, he looks like he could be a good NFL quarterback for several years, but he'd be much better off if he were not drafted by the Steelers. And what you're seeing now is exactly why. He'd be a lot better off if he had been drafted by the Houston Texans, somebody like that, long, far away from Pittsburgh, there's enough that goes with being the number one pick and being the, the de- designated as the franchise quarterback when you don't come from the, the same, when you haven't been exposed in the city for three years as a college player before you get picked. It's bad enough just for a guy to come in and, and do it. Bradshaw had to put up with it. They booed, or they cheered, I should say, when he was injured. Um, Cordell Stewart went through hell. So Kenny Pickens is getting a taste of it now. He'd have been better off if he had been drafted by somebody other than the Steelers. The other thing, real quick, on the college uh, football situation, uh, uh, Florida State got beat 63-3, to uh, three, or 6, maybe it was, whatever. It was ridiculous. And they had 24 or 25 players sit out because uh, they uh, were not playing for anything. It was just a bowl game, and they thought they got snubbed for the championship. And so they, they, these guys don't show up. What's supposed to be a great game, showcase game, 
the Orange Bowl ends up 63 to 3 or 6, whatever the final score was. But here's where, here's the thing that I'm asking. Now that they've decided that college football players can be paid, and college has little or nothing to do with college football at the highest levels, what would prevent, why shouldn't, I should put it this way, why shouldn't a guy who, say, comes to the Steelers and he's on the practice squad for two years and he, he gets cut or he doesn't like it, why shouldn't he, just as these players are doing now, try to sell himself to the highest bidder in college football and go back to college and play? Just pay him. That's what they're doing anyway. The amateur status means nothing. They, a, a guy, if a guy, if they're paying the players, what difference does it make if he spent two years as a professional player with a uh, uh, on a on a practice squad? He can go back to school. And what and what difference does it make to have freshmen, sophomore, juniors, and seniors? It doesn't have anything to do with that. Just if the guy wants to stay there for eight years, if all it is is just football players being paid to play football, and college has little or nothing to do with it. If a guy wants to stay there for six or seven years and doesn't get a shot at the NFL, stay there, make fifty, sixty, hundred thousand bucks a year to play college football. That's where it's headed, by the way. And if they don't fix it, that's where it's headed. We'll talk about it maybe uh, later this week. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.